So last month was National Poetry Month, uh, and at my my older daughter's school, uh, they they celebrated it. They had various activities. They learned about poetry in class. They read poems. They listened to poems. They had uh, the the principal read poems over the PA system in the mornings, uh, and they voted on poems. They you know for, as as uh, as individual classes, and then. The school as a whole, they they listened to different poems over the course of the month, and then at the end of the month, they voted on their favorites. And uh, this, I thought this was a pretty good idea. Like, you know, needless to say, the poems they read and listened to and voted on were terrible. the 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 winner was was a poem about <laughs> about blowing a a, a bubblegum bubble that was really big, and then at the end of the poem, it popped. Uh, but they, but they loved it, and and that's what I what I, what made me happy about it. Is they were voting on things they actually liked, and and you know they had uh, arguments about it. Like like uh, my daughter's favorite poem was not the the winner overall, and and that is to say she had a favorite poem. Like, like different kids had different favorite of the various PA system poems. She liked one of them so much that she she memorized it and she she changed some of the lines around and, and made her own version of it. Like, I, you know, thinking back on, I studied poetry a fair amount in elementary school as these things go. I don't think it ever seemed possible that, that there would be a favorite poem, that I would have a favorite poem at least not as something I encountered in school. Like I I liked some things I read outside of school, but like a lot of, you know, like a lot of the books I liked reading most outside of school, I got in trouble for bringing to school. So, uh, you know, the idea that there was a, that, that you would be spending time in school listening to poems and then picking your favorite one just because you liked it just because it sounded good or you thought it was funny or it was about something you were interested in or uh, or even your friends liked it. Even it just uh, got a rise out of the class as a whole. Even just it had some popular effect. That idea was pretty alien to me in elementary school. And so I was glad. You know, I I have been pretty convinced by, by the argument Dana Joya set forth and that essay on enchantment that I talked about with Mark McGinnis, that that the the new critics for all of their virtues and you know impressive all for, for all their impressive legacy, they they did maybe more harm than good in schools. And we would probably do well as a society not to take poetry out of schools altogether, but Maybe to take teaching poetry out of schools. Maybe just to let what happens in what. Maybe just to let poetry in schools be something fun. Be, uh, be the 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 honey around the rim of the glass. Be, uh, uh, Sydney compares it to the milk that babies drink before they're able to digest. You know, solid food. It prepares them. It prepares them for taking in heartier, more fibrous material. 
Uh, and and the other element that that I think that Joya recommended that was present in my daughter's poetry month activities was competition. That 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 some of the poems were better than others. Some of the poems beat each other out, and that means you had to say, you know, why they beat each other out. They beat each other out in that case because more kids liked them. That alone is. Uh, th the idea that poems could beat one another out because more people liked them is something, is an idea that is pretty much absent from what you might call page poetry. It's present online. It's present in Insta poetry. It's present in spoken word poetry. It's present in the elements of poetry that uh, remain in you know pop music, rap, and, and so on. But it's pretty absent from page poetry. Right? The popularity of a poem by sheer, by virtue of sheer uh, enjoyment of groups of people as a whole. That's just an idea you don't encounter in academic poetry, in literary poetry, in page poetry. But it was very present in my, my daughter's school over this past April, for which I was grateful. Now, on the last day of the month, driving her home from school, I asked her about which poem won. She told me about the stupid fucking bubble poem. And then I asked her, I said, so you, you, you spent some time in school talking about poems and you, you read some poems and you learned, they did have, you know, their librarian taught them some things. I, I think they have an English language arts teacher, then their, their homeroom teacher. And all of them talked about poems in some ways or dealt with poems in some ways. So I, I just asked her, I said, did you talk about what poems are? And she said, yes. And I said, okay, uh, uh, what's a poem? And she paused for a good while. And then she gave me uh, a, a short, simple declarative sentence in answer. And I, I felt it, like I, I felt the shadow of it cross my brain moments before she spoke. I, I anticipated the sentence verbatim. And I bet you can too. When I asked, what is a poem? She said, it doesn't have to rhyme. And then, you know, and then a few moments after that, she said, there aren't any rules. What is a poem? It doesn't have to rhyme. And it just got me thinking, like, is there anything else we teach kids in school? Is there any other subject, any other topic, any other uh, definition we teach kids in school? Uh, the, the first element of which, the, the, is there anything else the first fact about which you learn is one of the things that it doesn't have to include? What is a painting? Well, it doesn't have to have red in it. Step one to understanding what a painting is. What is a, a triangle? Well, uh, on a non-Euclidean surface, the, the angles don't have to sum to 180. That's, that's what a triangle is, right? What is a planet? Well, the majority of the surface doesn't have to be covered by briny, uh, life-supporting bodies of water. It seems sort of insane that this is... 
not only that this is the first sentence that came to her mind, but that I knew it was the first sentence that would come to her mind. And that you could probably have guessed that too, that, that pretty universally, what is a poem? What is poetry? The very first thing that comes to mind is, well, you know, one of those uh, elements of poetry that we, that we most intuitively associate with the art form, the thing that, that almost all of us enjoy and recognize and, and associate with it most strongly and most intuitively, that thing doesn't have to be there. And that's the first thing you need to know about it. And if, you, if there is a second thing, that second thing is just sort of an elaboration on that principle, which is that uh, there are no rules. I did. I finally did, though. I, I changed the form of my question a little bit. I said, "All right, so so your teacher uh, says a lot of things to you in class. She has conversations with you that are personal. She uh, gives you instruction for your various assignments. She tells you facts about the subjects you're learning about. She uh, maybe makes jokes sometimes." She reads aloud from books at times. Sometimes maybe she recites something from memory. And I said, so, so your teacher says a lot of things to you. Some of those things are poems and some of them are not. Right? And my daughter said, right. And by the way, I should say, I don't blame. I, I think, I think uh, what is a poem you, it doesn't have to rhyme is a terrible foundation for, for, for understanding poetry or thinking about poetry or just for liking poetry. I, I think it's a pretty useless uh, introduction to the art form, but I don't blame her teachers, right? Her teachers work really fucking hard and, uh, and this, they didn't invent this shit, right? This has been a, there's a reason I, I knew what she was going to say before she said it. This is not her teacher's fault. I certainly don't blame them. They have plenty on their plates. Uh, but but I said, you know, uh, you, when your teacher talks to you, sometimes she, what she says is a poem and sometimes it's not. And she said, okay, yes. And I said, okay, so how do you know the difference? How do you know when what you're hearing is a poem? Sometimes it's a poem. Sometimes it's not. When it is, how do you know? And my daughter's answer, I think, was actually the beginning of a reasonable meaningful definition. I said, how do you know what your teacher is saying is a poem? And my daughter said, I know because of the way she says it. The way she says it, not what she's saying. It doesn't really matter what it's about. It doesn't really matter what she's saying. It matters how she's saying it. And that is pretty true, I think. I think that's, a, that's actually like the first step in a pretty good definition of what poetry is. Now, uh, we, we didn't get a lot further than that, but you know, she's in fucking second grade and it's a short drive. <laughs> so I, I, again, I don't blame her teachers. Uh, and I think they, they do wonderful things. And one of the wonderful things they do is, is just get the kids to enjoy. Here's some poems that are just fun to listen to. Just some good old dumb, uh, sugary Jack Prolutsky style, silly kid poems. You know, that, that shit's great. That's great. But it, you know, there is at least somewhere in there the beginning of a thought about what poetry might actually be. And I don't think that's necessarily something that the kid should ever have to resolve in school. But uh, it is something I'm going to keep thinking about. How do you know what you're hearing as a poem?
because of the way she says it. There's a way poems sound that is different from the way things that are not poems sound. Then the only question really remaining is what is that way? And uh, we ran out of drive home and eight-year-old attention span and uh, the month of April before we got to the answer. So I guess we'll just have to wait till uh, (laughs) National Poetry Month 2023. I'm Matthew Buckley-Smith, and you're listening to Slee Ricketts. Thank you all for listening. Uh, Holy shit, I'm nervous as fuck to do this. So uh, good news, bad news, everybody. The the bad news is Slee Ricketts is selling out. The good news is it's selling out to you. (laughs) So I, uh, so this this has been, this has been in the works for a little while now. Uh, I am launching a, Slee Ricketts secret show. There is this feed, the main show, Slee Ricketts as you've known it for a little over a year now. That is going to stay the same. That is going to be, not, nothing's changing there. The feed's going to be the same. You know, you if you're subscribed, you stay subscribed. Nothing, nothing is going to change there. I'm still going to be doing a dumb show every week. There's a little uh, rain and thunder in the background you may hear. Uh, to add some <laughs> add some ambiance to this ominous announcement, uh, that the, the show as you know it is going to be unchanged. Uh, there is also going to be a secret show, uh, which is only sort of a secret. I didn't know what else to call it, so that's what I'm calling it. But that is a show that you can sign up to listen to uh, on Substack. So if you go to sleericketts.substack.com, you can sign up. It is extremely easy and intuitive, and there will be a new podcast feed in your iPhone or your whatever phone. Uh, however you listen to it, it will give you a new feed to, to listen to a new secret show. Now, there are two main goals to this enterprise. One is to break even, <laughs> right? There are, you know, not, not like terrible costs, but like there's definitely some costs associated with, uh, with, you know, recording equipment, with, uh, hosting the RSS feed with, uh, um, which is, which I just do through my website that I, you know, that I, I pay for it with, uh, some zoom things when I tried, you know, for doing conference, you know, conversations with more than two people, which I'm, I'm hoping to do more of, uh, in the future, uh, with mostly with buying a lot of fucking books, and uh, subscriptions for other things to, to read and uh, sometimes watch and talk about. So there, you know, as I said, there, there, there are some, some costs, nothing terrible, but I would just love to, I would be love to break even. That's really my, my, my aim. So there is a, you know, this, this is, this, this secret show is for money. The main feed is always going to be free. It's going to stay the same, but this new one will be a, a greedy capitalist venture. I went with Substack instead of the major podcast monetizing competitor 
uh, purely because Substack has a better record on free speech. It has nothing to do with the fact that it's less confusing to me. <laughs> it's easier to, the, of the shows I subscribe to, the ones on Substack are easier to sign up for, I find. It has nothing to do with all that. It's purely a matter of principle. This is high-minded. Uh, Slee Ricketts is a, is a, uh, is a, an ethical organization. And now I know for sure that I, I definitely will never be associated with any corporation that ever does anything wrong. So, so, so that's that. Again, you go to sleeverickets.substack.com, you put in your email address, and then you pick an option. So here are the options. I, I set the monthly fee. I've been waiting to do this for a while. I've been figuring out how to do it. I've been going back and forth. And one of the main factors slowing me down was this. Uh, how often am I, gonna, am I gonna put out a new show? And the answer is I don't know exactly right now. So I held off launching for a little while because I just didn't know exactly how often I'd be able to do that. I do have, I do tend to be, you know, a number of episodes ahead. I tend to have a lot of extra material. And so it's, it's fun to put together these other episodes. But this sort of gets me to my second major reason for doing this. The first is breaking even. The second is as... <laughs> <laughs> At a poetry reading recently, Jonathan Farmer stood up in the audience and said, now that you're apparently committed to torching your career, is there anything you feel more at liberty to say? And, you know, I guess the answer is sort of the entire podcast. But I guess I'm not, maybe I'm not totally, maybe I'm a little more cowardly than Jonathan gives me credit for. Uh, and a little more considerate of my wife, who frequently says, don't talk about that on the show. <laughs> So part of what The Secret Show will allow is for me to be even more careless about what I say, for me to include stuff, conversations with Brian or with Alice or with some guests uh, or just dumb solo monologues about things I probably shouldn't talk about in public. And so I won't talk about them in public. I will only talk about them with you. The, the tiny barrier, I think the rule with... Uh, internet content is sort of like the rule with 19th century warfare, which is that even a little wall can make all the difference in the world. So uh, I, I set the monthly subscriber fee to the to the minimum that you could on Substack, but that minimum is five bucks a month. And given that I'm not sure exactly how often I'll be able to put things out, that seems too high, right? I, I you know, there are, if I were, able to put things out really regularly, then, then that might make sense. But I think it's probably a little bit too high right now because I just don't know yet. So for now, what I've done, I can't set that any lower because that's what the lowest substack will allow. But I, I went around their system a little bit and I set the annual fee to that minimum. And so if you sign up for a monthly fee, it's five bucks a month. If you sign up for an annual fee, it's literally half that. So you, you pay all at once, but it's it's half that. It's two fifty a month. And that seems maybe more that seems closer. Like if you have a little goodwill to the show and you'd like to see it uh thrive, and you maybe would also like to listen to some some new, interesting even more ill-advised conversations and monologues, then that's where you go. You go uh two fifty a month uh for the the, the annual fee sleerickets.substack.com. I will obviously have a link in the show notes. If money is a problem for you, 
please do write to me, sleeverickets at gmail.com. And we'll like, we'll figure something out. If you're a diehard, maybe I'll give you like a trivia question and a, a code or something, you know, we'll work something out. Oh, and, and then there is another option. If you are rich, right? I know a lot of poor people listen to this, poor artists listen to this. Uh, great. Please continue to listen. Please let me know if money is a real problem for you. Um, and I can work something out with you. But if you are a rich person, I know at least a few rich people listen to this. If you're rich, there's a special subscription option just for you. I know rich people like exclusive uh, options. There's a special option just for you. Motherfucker, motherfucker of the arts, you get everything that a regular subscription will get you, but you get to pay more. And uh, I don't know, maybe maybe you can twist my arm. Maybe you can. Maybe we can find some other. Maybe we can uh, we can find some other special benefit just for you. But uh, if sign up to be a motherfucker of the arts, if you are rich, you richies out there, uh, that's that's the that's the option for you. I'm trying to think of what else is on there. Oh, uh, so I've I've put at the at the end of a couple of recent episodes, I put a, a small a short preview of what's on there in the first two episodes. So I'm sorry, that was a big thing I forgot to say. There are three episodes on there already. There are three completely new secret show episodes live on there right now. I've also put on there the episode 55 that I pulled from the main feed. That's on there in its original form. It's all there. Uh, and I'm, I'm hoping like there, you know, there are some very shy people I've talked to about coming on the show. My hope is maybe if some of them are too shy to come on the main feed, they'll come on the private feed. Um, a lot, most of what's on there right now are sort of, uh, I don't do a lot of intro talk on there because I figure why, does, why you might as well just get to the meat. What's on there right now is mostly dumb monologues by me followed by dumb conversations with Brian. But uh, it should be, I think it's going to be fun stuff. I think like we can be a little less careful, a little less buttoned up if we've been buttoned up at all thus far. Uh, and and I, I think, I mean, I think you're really going to like it is my guess. That's my hope. I don't want this to be an act of charity. I want this to be uh, something that's just fucking fun. That's my rule for any show I subscribe to for money is it's got to be one I just am eager to listen to. I just enjoy listening to. That's that's it. You know, same rule applies as with poetry. So uh, if you are, although if you're just feeling charitable, I accept that reasoning too. <laughs> please, please do sign up. So there are three episodes already up there as well as the the uh, the pulled episode fifty five that's up there too. I labeled it locked, which might have been kind of slightly confusing. All that means is it's on the private feed now, but it is there in its original form. You can listen to it today. Sign up today, and you can all listen to all all four of those. And there will be more to come. I don't know exactly how much, uh, but here's my principle: when I figure out exactly how much I'm going to be able I'll be able to update it, I might raise the annual rate above two fifty a month. So if you are, you know, if you're a diehard, sign up now and, uh, and you, you probably will be paying less than somebody who signs up six months from now. I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. But again, if you have any questions, please write to me. Again, Substack is super easy to use. I, I find it's, it's much easier to use than the big competitor. So uh, again, that's a total coincidence. I'm purely choosing them based on principle, free speech, etc. <laughs> to give you a little taste of the kind of stuff that's on there. Uh, Brian and I listen to and make fun of Ethan Hawke's hilariously dumb TED Talk on poetry. Uh, I I have a tipsy apology to a very important poetry critic. Uh, Brian roasts a MacArthur genius at length. Uh, we talk about a 
a, uh, a, a very clumsy attempt to cancel me, uh, and a bunch of other stuff. I, I mean, I, I think, again, I think you're going to like it. That's my goal. I just want to make shit you're going to like, that I enjoy doing, that's fun for everybody. And then again, uh, no narcs allowed. Okay, I had a great segment all planned and recorded and edited uh, and ready to go for today's episode. Uh, but then uh, yeah, then the news took a little bit of a left turn or, or really rather I looked up from my poetry hole and noticed that the news had already taken a, a pretty hard left turn. And just by bad coincidence, the the segment I'd recorded it just felt a little bit tonally shaky, a little bit like uh, kind of like when Donnie Darko uh, was gonna come out, and then and then Columbine happened, and they had to they had to postpone it. It's just a little close for comfort. So I'm gonna um, I am gonna hang on to it because I think it's a good segment, but I'm gonna release it maybe in a couple weeks or so. But. I have something else for you today. So though I've been completely out of touch when it comes to uh, the news of the world at large, I, I have been uh, somewhat tuned into poetry news and I've noticed something striking in the last few weeks. I have read uh, probably a dozen different articles on Ada Lamone. I don't know how to say her name, so I'm going to just say Ada Lamone. If it's different than that, I apologize, but uh, you, <laughs> you probably don't expect any different from me at this point. So, uh, so Ada Lamone has a new book out. It's called The Hurting Kind. This is book umpteen for her. Uh, she's the last this and the previous two have been kind of big, big hits. Uh, the Carrying and then Bright Dead things. She won, I think, the National Book Critics Circle Award. Here is an, a brief excerpt from Sarah Franklin's piece in Lit Hub. Uh, all of these, by the way, are from really like from the last two weeks. So just a ton of coverage. Uh, two, two different pieces in Lit Hub, three different articles in the New York Times. So this is from Sarah Franklin's piece. Though Lamone inspires, she's far from an inspirational poet. You know, bookmark that thought. Critics have heralded Lamone's work for its playfulness and form, its sumptuous accessible language, and the proximity into which she pulls her readers with familiar language and granular attention to detail. Tracy K. Smith called Lamone a poet of ecstatic revelation. Her poems fast and full of detail, and her voice conversational. The Carrying won the National Book Critics Circle Award that same year. The New Yorker published Envelopes of Air, a series of thrummingly feminine and searingly intimate epistolary poems made in a collaboration between Lamone and Natalie Diaz. The project was made over the course of nine months in 2017, an apt gestation period given the, the explorations of womanhood coursing through the poem. So Craig Morgan Teicher reviewed The Hurting Kind, pretty, uh, pretty, gave it a pretty strong positive review. It was reviewed in uh, the Boston Globe. In the, the Atlantic actually had a longer piece. NPR reviewed it rapturously. The book shows up in Lit Hub's list of most of best reviewed books, uh, which is which mostly is is fiction and nonfiction, by the way. But it was. Uh, got raves in um, the Brooklyn Rail 
uh, the Poetry Foundation, the San Francisco, San Francisco Chronicle, Shelf Awareness, Plowshares, the Los Angeles Times, Booklist. So I noticed this, lots of coverage, lots of attention. I know she's, she's been a kind of a darling of the poetry world for a few years now. Uh, but I, I thought there was something a little bit different about this coverage. So, you know, poets gain popularity or renown for a variety of reasons. There are, you know, three that come to mind that are, well, <laughs> I should say, uh, okay. So, so three bad reasons that poets gain renown are uh, uh, the, the persona or the personal narrative of the poet is, is, is appealing to, to readers or more often to critics. Uh, I think Ocean Vuong is probably a good example of that. Uh, there's also what William Goldman called the snob hit effect, which is to say that, that one or two extremely discriminating and prominent minds uh, approve of something enthusiastically and the and, and people as a result of that uh, respond by saying, oh, if, if I want to be smart, I guess this is something I should like too. I think Ben Lerner is probably a good example of that, uh, at least with the poetry. Again, I haven't really read his prose. Uh, another reason, which is not a terrible reason, it's probably the best of the bad reasons, is uh, is, is pure, uh, <laughs> I was going to say sociopathic, not necessarily sociopathic, pure, uncut, uh, unrelenting hustle. And I think, I think Kava Akbar is, you know, like, I don't, I don't, I think his poems are not so great, but uh, there may not be anybody working as hard as Kava Akbar. Uh, he, he, I don't think he's working at making his poems better, but he is working at advancing his career. And, you know, the, the man has uh, uh, stamina for this kind of stuff. So I think those are all three kind of, kind of familiar bad reasons that poets are sometimes successful. I don't think any of that is quite, what's quite happening with Lamone. I think there is something different. So of all of these reviews and, and articles and essays and interviews I read, uh, one or two of them, I think David Ulin or Ulin for the Los Angeles Times, I think his was really the only like, standard issue bad faith laudatory poetry review. Like it, it, he was really mailing it in on this one. Here's the, the first paragraph of his piece. Ada Lamone opens her sixth book of verse Got to say verse, I guess, because he knows he's going to be saying poetry a lot and he wants to vary the diction. Ada Lamone opens her sixth book of verse, The Hurting Kind, with an epigraph from the Argentine poet Alejandra Pizarnik. And this is Pizarnik's, uh, this is the epigraph. Though it's late, though it's night, and you are not able, sing as if nothing were wrong. Nothing is wrong. It's a striking set of lines, especially in the current moment, when reality itself appears to have slipped the rails. The lingering effects of the pandemic, the fallout from the January 6th insurrection, the draft decision that may overturn Roe versus Wade. It seems impossible to imagine that we will ever know anything other than upheaval or worse. At the same time, what other choice do we have but to live? This is absurd writing. I mean, first of all, if there's anything striking about that epigraph, it's its resemblance to Susanna Clark and Richard Lee's much paraphrased 1987 song, Come From the Heart, <laughs> which goes, you've got to sing like you don't need the money, love like you'll never get hurt. You've got to dance like nobody's watching. It's got to come from the heart if you want it to work, right? That's, that's what 
uh, the the epigraph reminds one of. And then he he just has it's like he has this checklist of important current events that he he feels he needs to shoehorn into this piece. At the same time, what other choice do we have but to live? Meaningless rhetorical question. Um, he he then goes on to praise the po poems mostly by insisting that the language, the, it's all about the language, the language is great. He, he's only able to identify one example, one specific example of the language actually having any quality whatsoever. And it's, it's from the line, enough of the pointing to the world, comma, weary and desperate. Or the, and desperate falls in the next line. So the, the lines are, enough of the pointing to the world, weary and desperate. <laughs> and Yulin's assessment is, could there be a better piece of wordplay than world, comma, weary? And like, yeah, man, there, there could be lots. Like, like try in any poem written by Emily Dickinson or John Donne or Harriet Mullen or, or one of my personal favorites, W.C. Fields, who, uh, who quipped, after two days in the hospital, I took a turn for the nurse. That's a better piece of wordplay than world, comma, weary, which is fine. But, you know, like world weary is a compound word. Like that, that's how compounds get made, by putting together two words. All she does is break them apart again. But, but I do think when it comes to uh, praise for the hurting kind, for Ada Lamone's poems, I think that Yulin's uh, uh, half-hearted paint-by-numbers review is... The exception, uh, and and in the rest of these articles, or at least many of them, the breathless rhetoric, the personal divulgences, and the sort of pseudo philosophical self helpy bent that many of them display, all suggest something other than the usual denial infused poetry review copy pasta. What it suggests to me is that the people writing these reviews genuinely like Ada Lamone's poetry. So this is from Nicole Chung's piece in The Atlantic. Uh, all right, so this is Nicole Chung. She, meaning Ada Lamone, she is one of my all-time favorite writers. Writers. This is what a few of them make the point that, like, that, that she is beloved as a writer even outside the category of poetry, or even by people who, who don't like like poetry, especially. So this is this is back to Nicole Chung. She is one of my all-time favorite writers, someone whose work I return to again and again for solace, inspiration, and truth. My copies of The Carrying and Bright Dead Things are now so dog-eared that I could never loan them out to anyone. That's something, right? This is, you know, I think the caring, I can't remember if it was the caring or bright dead things. One of her recent books sold 40,000 copies, which isn't so extraordinary if you're, uh, if you're, you know, comparing it to like hit fiction or nonfiction titles, but in poetry, that's astounding. I mean, that's amazing. The, the one of the, 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 uh, one of the, the, the title of one of the New York Times pieces was Ada Lamone makes a living by writing poems which she she seems to i mean her her husband has a job but she she seems to that's really her main income that and her her podcast which i guess she gets donations from uh she inherited it from tracy k smith here is javika verma for npr she says above all the hurting kind asks for our attention to stay tender to know that the world is here to both guide us and lead us astray. Toward the end of the long poem, Lamone writes, I will not stop this reporting of attachments. There is evidence everywhere. 
So don't stop looking. This is Javika Verma talking to us. She, this is like the, the end of the end of uh, the end of uh, like the end of Oda de Grishan. Like like the quotation marks end, the the quotation marks close, and then Verma turns to us, having been inspired by Ada Lamone to say, "So don't stop looking. Just be open to what you may find, and know the world is watching you too." This is in you know in in uh, in, in uh, Chung's article. It's not. She doesn't. Um, she doesn't give advice in the same way as Verma, but she does uh, quote. She she cites Lamone's uh, in in conversation. She cites Lamone in conversation. She says she shared some of the most generous and insightful writing advice I've ever heard. Think about this category: the most generous and insightful writing advice I've ever heard. So think about all the people who have written about writing: Aristotle, Horace. John Gardner, uh, John Hollander, uh, Derek Walcott, Sid- Philip Sidney. Think about all the people who've written on writing. This is just, this is some of the most generous and insightful writing advice I've ever heard. This is from Lamone in Conversation. Remember not to get too caught up in the idea that everything's been written or said or explored before. Give yourself permission to explore it for yourself. You are a unique human being put on this planet in this moment, and that can be enough. So what seems clear in both of these cases that is that the, the writers of these pieces are are really moved by Lamone's poems and moved not just as as readers but as as uh, as human beings as like as like hopeful agents of of meaning in the world it feels it has a very they talk about her and they cite her and imitate her the way one might with a particularly effective uh, preacher um, or guru. Here is maybe the most uh, ecstatic of the pieces. This is Sarah Franklin again in LitHub. She says, for years now, I've kept Lamone's books of poems on my bedside table where I revisit them after I finally get my young twins to sleep and I'm feeling empty and used up. When I need tender love or a good cry, when I need when I need a nudge to bring my body into the outdoors, to walk the birds, to walk the dog, or get into the garden where, where Lamone likes, as I do, to lose herself in work and wonder. In the early days of pandemic shutdown, with the world taut with anxiety and my marriage teetering on the edge of collapse, I reread the carrying and bright dead things cover to cover, night after night, refracting the cost of continuing to stay and fight or throwing in the towel through the prism of Lamone's words. Lamone does not come at truth with the slant of Dickinson. She is, rather, more inclined toward a direct punch to the gut. Somehow, I still experience her poems as soft. This is really personal writing. Right? I don't think this is bullshit. I think this is totally genuine, uh, and it's and it's powerful. It's moving. You know, I, it, Franklin writes about Lamone's poetry helping get her through some really difficult periods in her own life. She also, though, writes about the experience of talking to Lamone even over Zoom the way you might expect someone to talk about meeting meeting a long lost love of some kind. I mean, it's it's so. This is, you know, some of, some of uh, this, I mean, this is really Franklin's most evocative writing in the whole article. Surrounded by houseplants and books in her home office, Lamone lit up the screen, her gaze open and inquisitive, her voice velvety in its inflections, her dark hair cascaded down past her collarbone onto the soft peach of her blouse. I found myself wishing desperately 
listen, all right, I'm gonna start that sentence again. I found myself wishing desperately we were in space together, wondering what it would be like to feel the presence of a poet who writes, the body is so body. That those are the lines that she's profoundly moved by. The body is so body. You might, this is back to Sarah Franklin, you might call Lamone something of a phenomenological poet. Much of what she brings to her poem, sorry, you, <laughs> Heidegger, Husserl, Lamone, you might call Lamone something of a phenomenological poet. Much of what she brings to her poems is the physical experience of being in the world. And I told her it felt like something vital was missing meeting her this way. I guess this way being by Zoom. So, you know, I, if there's, if there's anything, uh, I'm going to be talking with Alice about poetry manifestos and, uh, she responded to the challenge. She responded to the topic by writing her own manifesto. Now I feel obliged to write something which, which terrifies me, but you know, if there would be, if there's anything that would be at the heart of a manifesto about poetry, I'd write, uh, is it, that you should enjoy it. You should be reading it because you enjoy it. You should write what you, you would enjoy. Enjoyment should be there at the center. And so this is, you know, I don't want to tease these journalists too much because they are, they enjoy her poetry. They really sincerely do. And they're writing about it with a passion. And I, I, I am, I'm glad to hear that. I'm, ex- I'm glad that this, these poems have helped them. I'm glad that uh, Lamone is able to make a living with her poetry. She, unlike a lot of other poetry world uh, stars. She seems, you know, by all accounts to be genuinely a, a really a nice person. Um, she's also, and I, and I, you know, I hesitate to say this because I, I don't think that it's central necessarily to her appeal, but it is maybe hard to overlook the fact that she is very beautiful and very stylish and, but in, in a, I think in a kind of a reasonable approachable way, right? She doesn't look like a, like an Instagram model, uh, but she is, a, uh, but, but there is something, you know, it's clear from Franklin's writing that there is something about her, her self as presented aesthetically that, that at least enhances the appeal of her poems. The thing that, that confused me when I read these, this writing, because again, I, I don't think this is the usual, I don't think this is the usual poetry review tap dance. I think this is sincere appreciation. But then what baffled me was that Almost everything Lamone said in the interviews and almost all of the lines that these journalists quoted, I mean, presumably the, the best of her poems, they were all facile, mawkish, and prosaic. Here, here are some of uh, Franklin's favorite lines. We've come this far, survived this much. What would happen if we decided to survive more? To love harder. And then, some days I can see the point in growing something, even if it's just to say I cared enough. And then, but right now, all I want is a story about human kindness. So these are the lines that are helping some of these, you know, again, very sincere journalists through their dark nights, the soul. One of the New York Times pieces was a was a poem of Lamone's accompanied by a a very uh, a complimentary introduction by Victoria Chang, who edits poems for the the New York Times Book Review. And uh, Victoria Chang's 
opening and the and the beginning of that little micro essay that that Chang wrote uh, helped me think about Lamone's poems maybe in a slightly different way. So she says, I can always rely on an Ada Lamone poem to give me hope, but Lamone's poems don't give us the kind of facile hallmark hope. Rather, her hope is hard-earned, even laced with grief or unhappiness. The back end of that sentence, I don't think, tells us a whole lot about hope being hard-earned or laced with grief or unhappiness. I mean, that that's truly any hope that's not childish. I mean, even Hallmark uh, cards express bittersweet sentiments. I mean, that's sort of their whole shtick. Uh, so I, I don't know that, that hope, you know, it, it would be, it, it's hard to find any expression of hope that's not truly fundamentally childish, like a, like the hope for Christmas day. It's hard to find any hope that's not t- laced with grief or unhappiness. But, but what uh, Chang says, I think, gives a little bit of the game away. Well, I, I don't want to say give the game away because I don't think it's a game, but she, she, I think, tips the emotional hand of a lot of these writers. And she says, this is not facile Hallmark hope. And I think that's right. I don't think this is, these are Hallmark cards. I think they are, they are, uh, they're different than Hallmark cards. Um, but I do think that there is maybe a relationship to that kind of writing. So the, the, the phrase that came to mind, uh, so in 2011, Manola Dargis wrote a review of Bridesmaids. And she reviewed it positively. And she referred offhand to John Hamm, the actor who famously made his big break as the star of Mad Men. Uh, he's, he is still almost synonymous with Don Draper as, a, as a, a figure and a name. She called him the thinking woman's brute. And I think that that was a quite a, a an apt phrase, right? Because John Hamm is not Chris Hemmings, right? Uh, he's he's very good looking, but he's you know in a maybe in more of a uh, 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 an Ada Limon way, right? A little little older than you know your average uh, you know twenty five year old model, a little uh, a little more weathered, but still. Um, uh, but still extremely stylish and uh, warm and inviting. Uh, and, and, and yet there is something about him uh, that he has, he has a very non-Adelimone quality, which is a, a slight coarseness or hardness that, um, that is really, I think, mostly just aura left over from Don Draper, this uh, haunted patriarch of the 1960s. I don't think Adelimone is a thinking woman's hallmark card, but I do think she might be a thinking woman's version of something else. So uh, for my sins, after reading all of these articles and reviews, I read The Hurting Kind and was not blown away. I thought I, it was it was roughly what I expected it to be. I, I don't think she's a bad poet. Uh, n- nothing really caught my attention or moved me. I mean, probably the best poem, just because it's sort of funny in a kind of an anti-poetry way, is, is the last one, the end of poetry, where she most of the poem is just a list of uh, uh, common tropes of poems and poetry, many of which I was certainly guilty of employing in, in, in both of my <laughs> collections. But most of The Hurting Kind was exactly the kind of poems that were quoted throughout all of these 
essays, they were they had some precise descriptions of nature. Nature, though, usually in a kind of a, a suburban domestic context. Nature, the nature of the backyard, kind of. Um, even if the backyard is in uh, is in uh, Lexington, Kentucky, in, in, rather than uh, New York City. Um, I guess there aren't backyards in New York City, really. But these were not. You know, they, they didn't have much music to them. They didn't have much wit or irony to them. They were seldom surprising or funny or, you know, really wrenching. They did, however, have a very consistently uh, uplifting quality. They... They, they were, there was a lot of self-affirmation and, and affirmation of others. Uh, there was a lot of, um, some, of the, some of the reviewers talked about her as being feminist. I, I am uh, uh, not an expert on, on precisely what that means, but there was certainly a lot of talk about, uh, about women loving themselves and, and taking themselves seriously and, and celebrating themselves, all of which is to the good. But it, it did, it had the quality, I think, of being, it felt a little bit like the diary of a self-help guru. And it occurred to me that there is another poet who reminds me a great deal of Ada Lamone. I think Lamone is the better poet, but I think the difference is actually small. Um, or, or, well, I think the difference is is substantial, but is a difference of degree rather than kind. I don't think Ada Lamone is the thinking woman's Hallmark card. I do think she might be the thinking woman's Rupi Kaur. And just to test this thesis, I, uh, <laughs> I put together a list of some lines from Rupi Kaur paired with lines from Ada Lamone. And uh, as I was copy pasting them and, and compiling them, I, I confess that there were moments, there were moments when I forgot who'd written which. I do think, again, I think I think Lamone is the better poet. I think she she uh, grounds her poems with with uh, imagery, specific imagery, a lot more often than Kaur does. But I think in in sentiment and style, they are not so different. So he, I'll just I'll just read a few examples, and you can decide for yourself. But this is this is Rupi Kaur. I don't know what living a balanced life feels like. When I am sad, I don't cry. I pour. And here's Ada Lamone. To say I weep is untrue. Weep is too musical a word. I heave into the soil. I had to reread that line when I first came across it because I, at least uh, growing up, heave was a synonym for vomit. I don't think that's what she means. So here's Ruby Kaur. I want sunspots as souvenirs for the beaches we laid on. I want to look like I was never afraid to let the world take me by the hand and show me what it's made of. And here's Ada Lamone. I want them to go on kissing without fear. I want to watch them and not feel so abandoned by hands. Come home. Everything is begging you. Here's Ruby Kaur. Think of those flowers you plant in the garden each year. They will teach you that people too must wilt, fall, root, rise in order to bloom. And here's Ada Lamone. I am trying to kill the fig buttercup the way I'm supposed to, according to the government website. But right now there's a bee on it, yellow on yellow, two bright things radiating life. 
I need them both to go on living. Here's Rupi Kaur. Sometimes the apology never comes when it is wanted. And when it comes, it is neither wanted nor needed. And here's Ada Lamone. And because I cannot apologize to the tree, to my own self, I say, I am sorry. I am sorry that I have been so reckless with your life. Here's Ruby Kaur. You don't see the person they are. You see the person they have the potential to be. You give and give till they have taken everything out of you and leave you empty. And here's Ada Lamone. Could you refuse me if I asked you to point again at the horizon to tell me something was worth waiting for? Here's Ruby Kaur. The irony of loneliness is we all feel it at the same time. Here's Ada Lamone. Love ends, but what if it doesn't? Kaur, we have been dying since we got here and forgot to enjoy the view. Lamone, haven't we learned by now that just because something is bound to break doesn't mean we shouldn't shiver when it breaks? Kaur, my voice is her father's words and mother's accent. What is the matter if my mouth carries two worlds? Lamone, and so I have two brains now, two entirely different brains, the one that always misses where I'm not, and the one that is so relieved to finally be home. Kaur, from now on I will say things like, you are resilient, or you are extraordinary. Lamone, it makes me want to give all my loves the adjectives they deserve, you are resplendent. You are radiant. You are sublime. Kaur, despite knowing they won't be here for long, they still choose to live their brightest lives. Sunflowers. Lamone, if I had known, would I have still made mistake after mistake until I had only the trunk of me left, stripped and nearly bare of leaves? That image uh, you will recognize from the giving tree. Here's Rupi Kaur. All this means nothing. This page where you're sitting, your degree, your job, the money, nothing even matters except love and human connection. Who loved and how deeply? And here's Ada Lamone. I didn't know then that it wasn't even love that I was interested in, but my own suffering. I thought suffering kept things interesting. How funny that I called it love. And the whole time, it was pain. So I, I, uh, I don't want just to make fun of Ada Lamone. As I said before, I think she seems like a truly lovely person. Her, she has genuine fans who genuinely like her poems and 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 buy books of them and support her. And great, uh, I, I certainly, I certainly cannot knock that. Uh, I, I guess if I have a criticism, it's just that uh, I think plenty of the same people who uh, who celebrate Lamone's poetry might dismiss Rupi Kaur's poetry. Now, I'm not a huge fan of either, but I do think they are doing more or less the same thing. I think the biggest difference, I think Lamone is probably a, a better writer. I think Lamone is a better writer. I think she has slightly more range than Kaur. But uh, I also think she's older, right? She has a lot more experience than Kaur. And uh, she is, and she is writing for a certain audience. She's writing for people who are book readers, not necessarily people who are poetry readers, but people who are book readers. 
And I think they appreciate the slight refinement of her writing, the, uh, the, the added physical detail, the precise diction. In most cases, she, she misuses both enormity and nonplussed, but then again, most book reading people misuse those words. So no big deal. I, I, I just think that, uh, that there is, I think we could use slightly less overheated language in talking about Ada Limon and just acknowledge that she writes uh, feel-good self-affirmations that people that, that make, that do their job and get very nice people through very hard times. I just don't think she is a a brilliant immortal poet. Um, I, I I'll tell you what though. In, in 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 preparing this segment, I did start to experience a little bit of self doubt. N- not about my verdict on Ada Limon, but really about my verdict on on my own poetry. Really, I mean, so so I I I think as I've mentioned before, I write a poem a week with a couple of ladies that I, I met through a poetry anthology. We meet on Zoom, we share a prompt, and then we spend 45 minutes or so banging out a draft of something, and we read it to each other, and then we sign off. Or I sign off, and they keep talking. <laughs> uh, but uh, I I worry that what I'm doing may be getting a little facile, maybe getting a little easy. I tend to be a big believer in clarity, uh, not necessarily what people call accessibility, because that can end up meaning a, a lot of things, including dumbing down. But I think there is really something to be said for clarity. And while I don't have the same ultimately optimistic vision of the universe that Ada Limon seems to have, I I wonder how much deeper or more sophisticated my own poems might be. And And right now, I don't totally know. I do think I want to devote a segment in the future to A.E. Stallings. A.E. Stallings, Alicia Stallings is her, her uh, given name. She really is one of my very, very favorite poets. I mean, I, I have, I think, like many formal poets, especially uh, male and female my age or, or hereabouts, I've been a little bit in love with her since high school when I, when uh, my mentor gave me her first book. But I, I, I think that so when I have spoken to people about her poems and they have not been receptive, the criticism tends to be that her work is too simple. It's too easy, both in sentiment and in structure. And I, while I disagree, I think it might be useful to kind of break down why. Certainly, I'm more hopeful about my ability to do that with her poems than with my own. So I, I do want to maybe get back to, get back to that at some point. But um, for now... I'll just close with, let's just do a reading of uh, Ada Limon's last poem in this book called The End of Poetry. Uh, and and here, I think, you know, it, it, it ends a little sentimentally in a kind of a typical Ada Limon fashion, but as a list of shit she's tired of seeing in poems, you know, <laughs> uh, let he who has never sinned cast the first stone. So here's the end of poetry. Enough of osseous and chickadee and sunflower and snowshoes, maple and seeds, samara and shoot. Enough chiaroscuro, enough of thus and prophecy and the stoic farmer and faith and our father and tis of thee. Enough of bosom and bud, skin and God, not forgetting and star bodies and frozen birds. Enough of the will to go on and not go on or how a certain light does a certain thing. Enough of the kneeling and the rising, and the looking inward, and the looking up, 
Enough of the gun, the drama, and the acquaintance's suicide, the long-lost letter on the dresser, enough of the longing and the ego and the obliteration of ego, enough of the mother and the child on the father and the child, and enough of the pointing to the world, weary and desperate, enough of the brutal and the border, enough of can you see me, can you hear me, enough I am human, enough I am alone and I am desperate, enough of the animal saving me, enough of the high water, enough sorrow, enough of the air and its ease, I am asking you to touch me. Uh, so I, I, um, that, that's, I like, I rather like that one. I don't, you know, it's, um, it may be, it has a little bit of that, uh, uh, saving up the invocation of the U till the last line in order to provoke a double take, but it's, uh, again, it's hard to argue with her moratorium. All right. That is this week's show. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, I, you can reach me as always at sleebrickets at gmail.com or on Twitter, at Slee Ricketts. I'm getting kind of tired of, I just, you know, there are a few of us doing it, but uh, but everybody's been slacking off a little bit. And I'm, I just think, I just, I just find it really boring. I just find Twitter really boring. And uh, and as I talk about in The Secret Show a little bit, I've already gotten in a small amount of trouble for, <laughs> for it. So I don't know, I'm thinking of deactivating it just Unless there, unless there seems to be like a good reason to keep it going, I have a whole lot more fun talking to y'all this way than through Twitter. In any, in any case, what I am uh, certainly planning to go ahead with is The Secret Show. So please, if you have not yet, go to sleerickets.substack.com and sign up to listen to a bunch more uh, dumb gossipy bullshit on there. Sleerickets.substack.com. I will have a link in the show notes. And as a reward for your patience, here is a... Uh, preview of the third episode of The Secret Show. Three episodes, as I said, are up there now. You can listen to them today along with the pulled 55th episode. Here is that preview right now. At some point later on, I could definitely be a very like nerdy guy taking a drawing class i was gonna like, say painter yeah. right yeah. you could like you could not right. painting painting is beyond me with especially oh, with right, the, right. like, well color i don't see color well, oh that's but, right you don't see color yeah but like yeah i always like i always like liked drawing a little bit and i was okay at it as a kid and so like yeah i would like to do a little more of that at some point uh and my, maybe i would end up paying for six sessions and going to four i don't know <laughs> is it obnoxious to me to uh, of me to think of of drawing especially at the level you're discussing as as more like craft or skill based i of course writing is craft based but like i could see six sessions after going to a, a drawing class you being able to like draw an apple that sort of looks like an apple a little bit better yeah where it feels like there you could see results whereas i can't imagine anyone i mean not that you're not a spectacular teacher of literary yeah. arts but i i i I bet it's difficult to see results at the end of this. Are, are people looking to publish? Are they are they looking to show others maybe? And they just want a, it's like pay a few hundred bucks and get edited by someone who knows stuff? So Yeah, maybe. I mean, I wonder about if it's not a matter of like the bigness of the skill though, because you're right, like drawing an apple feels like a discreet enough thing that if you went and right. practiced drawing right. still life for six weeks for and you're not going to do it on your own so to you're forced to show up and try yeah. to draw the apple and someone's and like really no focus, you shade there yeah right. and you and you've listened to the teacher and you did it a little bit on your own during the week then you would think that after six weeks you, you probably would be a little better at it i think that would be true if i were teaching a course in writing like verse like writing in meter and rhyme right and for like 14 lines at a time 
and I and like we did it and we crunched right. and we and yeah, crunched knuckles the and we tried it. And, yeah. Right. Yeah. And like I think I would get people noticeably better at that over the course of six weeks. I think writing a short story is such a big amorphous task that probably you don't see. I think like my my hope is that the difference is the difference that you might get from uh like honestly like taking John Irwin's classes like cuz he was such a weird boring teacher in person but then like so many weird little things he said have come back to me over the years and have ended up feeling truer over time. When I took classes from John Irwin, who had some sort of heart attack and lay on the ice for a long time and then died. He had a terrible Is fall. That, he, he died later. It took him oh, it, like he didn't he, he was that kind of he, yeah. It's a a, a a dramatic incident from what I yes. from what I yeah, 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 told yeah, yeah. that involved yes. lying on the ice for, for a long time. Yeah, exactly. Time. Yeah, he fell on the ice. Yeah. Um there's nothing funny about that. I don't know why, I don't know why I'm laughing. Good the poor, zinger. The poor, the poor old man. Just, there's no story. He just fell on the ice and no one was around to help. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's not, it's not, there's nothing, there's nothing amusing about an, an elderly man falling on the ice um, and nobody being around to help. Yeah. I, uh, I thought he was one of the worst teachers I've ever had of anything. Yeah. Of anything i he so um looked down upon us as students yeah. but we were such better we were so much better at being students than he was at being a teacher <laughs> that it, it was it was offensive it was so it was doubly offensive so we were graduate students at this, at this point yeah. assigned like not much reading and he would give us like like uh, six questions like reading quizzes i i, I we were like in our twenties and thirties and he was giving us reading quizzes. Like what is the girlfriend's name in, you know, this story by uh, Fitzgerald who, who remembers characters names anyway. So it's like, it's like not only was it insulting, but it meant we were reading as though we were sixth graders, like circling the names. Cause you want to be yelled at by this old washed up man who would get hurt and lie on the ice. And he just, he, he, he hated us and he hated being there. And the only thing he liked was he went on these whimsical journeys in his own mind about, you know, who here has, has piloted a helicopter? You know, like we, we know, we know, you know, the answer to that. None of us have piloted a helicopter, you know, and he would talk to us about how only the only, the, the definition of a real man is to pilot a helicopter. And it's, it was, um, he wasn't a good teacher. Yeah, in in uh, in his defense, he did. As far as being watched up, he did a few years after we graduated publish the definitive book on Hart Crane, which he'd been working on for something I'm like sure. thirty years. I'm sure he uh, had other talents. Yeah. One more time to hear the rest of that conversation, as well as two other whole new episodes and many more to come. Go to sleerickets.substack.com and sign up now. Use the annual fee version because it's cheaper. It's a lot cheaper. So unless you're rich, in which case, sign up to be motherfucker of the arts and give me uh, extra money. Thank you so much. And with any luck, I will be speaking to you all again very soon. Until then. Until then.